after the euphoria of the CASPA protests, that huge coming together of people from across the nation and across political and social divides to celebrate their freedoms and dream up a new future for the country, the spring and summer of 2011 brought Tunisians crashing back down to reality. And that reality was that they did not share a universal vision for the future of Tunisia, and they never really had. As different factions begin vying for power and ramping up for the election that fall, the kumbaya feeling of the early days of the revolution evaporated, and unhealed wounds were laid bare. Miriam Masmoudi, who we met last episode after her family returned to Tunisia from North Carolina, started working at a youth-led NGO that was trying to encourage other young people to get involved in the future of Tunisia. At that time, I wasn't wearing the headscarf. I wasn't wearing the hijab, but I was practicing. I mean, but if you saw me, you wouldn't know that. So I remember one day I was in uh, our offices and it was time for one of the five daily prayers. And so I just picked myself up and I went, found some, you know, empty corner in, in the apartment and I prayed and then I came back. I'm very accustomed to this in the US. I mean, this is just kind of what you do. You you go do your thing and you come back and it's fine. And nobody cared before. And so when I come back, I remember this this guy, one of my, you know, colleagues in the organization said, where were you? And I said, I went to pray. And he said, you pray? And I said, yes, I, I pray. I'm Yes. And he was like, so you're religious? And I said, I mean, yeah, I mean, no, I, I guess so. I tried to be it was such a weird conversation to have. And he immediately, I mean, just totally goes off the rocker. And he says, oh, are you a member of the of another party? Are you, are you an Islamist? And I was like, what? And he immediately starts going, are you an Islamist? Oh, and you're from the U.S. Are you like an agent? Are you like a CIA agent? This guy went absolutely insane. Starts spewing all sorts of different like conspiracy theories. Starts saying, oh, is that why you, you came back to Tunisia? You're trying to you know uh change things and tell us what to do with our lives and and trying to like control i mean it just i didn't understand a single thing this guy was saying it made absolutely no sense so this was one of the first sort of real life encounters that i had with the fact that there was political repression in tunisia yes but it was also mixed with a sort of religious repression because the largest opposition, definitely not the only, but the largest opposition to the Ben Ali regime or to the Bourguiba regime before that was from the main religious party in the country. That main religious opposition party was Anatha, the party Miriam's parents belonged to. And it wasn't just Miriam's colleague who was worried about Anatha coming back and looking for power. Despite the fact that Ben Ali imprisoned and tortured activists on both ends of the political spectrum, there wasn't much love lost between leftists like Sikhar and Malik and Anadha. A lot of leftists saw Anadha as anathema to Tunisia's success. And as the election drew closer, the question on everyone's mind was, who will come out on top? Who will lead Tunisia into its next chapter of history? From the Agora Podcast Network, this is Revolution One. Today's episode, The Election. You know, Cyrus, I think we might need to dive into Anadha a bit here and why so many Tunisians were worried about them. 
The last time we heard from them was all the way back in episode two, when they were this kind of scrappy upstart of young religious guys from the less elite echelons of Tunisian society. But a lot of time had passed between then and 2011, when the transitional government opened a path for the return of Tunisians in exile. Yeah, a lot had happened for Nata in those years. So we know that during the peak years of Bourguiba and Benali oppression in the 80s and 90s, tens of thousands of Tunisians left the country. Some left to pursue education or work elsewhere. Others left because Benali had a target on their head, usually for their political beliefs. That included thousands of Nahdawis. But whether they had left by choice or by force, most Tunisians landed in Europe, where it wasn't always easy to be brown, Muslim, or both. Mahrzi Labidi had moved to France in the mid-80s for her husband's PhD at the Sorbonne. She was religious and active in France's Muslim community, but she wasn't particularly political. Many of her friends had joined Anadha back in Tunisia, and although she had read some of their political literature, she was still a little skeptical. The revelation, if you can say for me, was when I attended in 89 the meeting, the annual meeting of Muslims in France. The conference had invited imams from conservative countries like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia to address the audience. Mehrzia said their speeches were traditional and limited, even in a year where there were important issues at stake. In France, we had a big controversy about these girls entering the middle school wearing hijab, headscarves. And they are from Morocco. So even the king of Morocco intervened, saying that he ordered them to get off their hijab, etc. And so this meeting was held in a very tense moment. But then there was an unscheduled speaker. It happened that Sheikh Rashid Ghanoushi, at the time president of Nava, exiled the president of Nava, was in Paris. And he attended this meeting and some one of them had the genius idea of giving him 15-minute address to the public. Rashid Ghanoushi, the head of Anadha in exile, and I should say, no relation to Mohamed Ghanoushi, Ben Ali's PM who took over the transition. Just after the election of Ben Ali in 1989, he fled the country for France and happened to drop into the conference. He took the podium. And he said something very, very interesting for me. He was addressing a community asking for the right of their girls to wear hijabs. He said, look here, what are your priorities? Wearing hijabs or getting integrated in French society? Your daughters are already belonging to immigrant community, the poorest community, the most marginalized communities. If you choose hijabs, and get um, get them out of the school. That means that you are adding ignorance and economic marginalization to them. Islam is logic. Islam is uh, a religion of reason and of progress. If I were you, I will choose first of all school, second school, third school, and then we will speak about what to wear and not to wear. And he said, if you must have a priority, your priority must be citizenship. You have to fight for your rights as citizen. You have to contribute to citizenship in this country. And I was so enthusiastic that I stood up and started clapping. Of course, some ladies sitting around me looked at me like this. 
Natalie stared at me. What are you doing? And what is he saying? The idea of the confluence of Islam and the democratic values of citizenship and progress struck Meherzia to the core. It was a cornerstone of Ghanoushi's philosophy, one that would come to shape Anatta over the next two decades. I think the subtlety here is really important to point out. Ben Ali had long positioned himself as the foil to the Islamists and had instilled a profound fear in his citizens that if they took over, Tunisia would be governed by Sharia or Islamic law and would become the next Saudi Arabia or Iran. All the repression, but none of the oil money to take the edge off. That is what Tunisians were terrified of. But Cyrus, that wasn't really what Khanoushi and the leaders of Anadha were trying to do, was it? No, not at all. Khanoushi wanted Tunisia to have a democracy where different parties could exist because he believed in the will of the people. But he also believed that the authentic will of Tunisians was inherently Islamic, and that secularism was a kind of colonial fog they were stumbling through. So if given the chance, he thought Tunisians would move their society towards Islam, not away from it. I'm not saying that Hanoushin and Nata didn't want to make Tunisia a more religious society, a more religious country. They absolutely did. But they weren't interested in doing that through a theocratic dictatorship. They wanted to take Tunisia back to its conservative Muslim roots through democratic means instead. So when the leadership of Anadha went into exile in Europe, they already had a framework that said, hey, if we want our values to be represented, we have to participate. We have to be active citizens. And now suddenly they were in a place where they could try that out in real practical terms. Exactly. And they did. They joined or created civil society groups. They got involved in local politics and they refined their ideas and their political skills. Meherzia joined a multi-faith group that worked on women's issues. She wrote articles, lobbied politicians, and attended conferences. Several years later, she became a member of the French national chapter of Religions for Peace. And when uh, the revolution happened in 2011, I was in a delegation, a mission with Religions for Peace. We were in Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan was making a transition from a dictatorship to democracy and was in the process of drafting a new constitution. Meherzi and her delegation had been invited to help mediate between the state and the sizable Muslim community there. I spent there a week trying to convince them to join the drafting of the constitution. A constitution for all Kyrgyzis, Muslims and non-Muslims. It was wonderful. I was in this work, and then a young journalist from this country Uh, came to one of our meetings and she asked me, well, you are helping here the drafting of a constitution, etc., and you are doing mediation, and what about your country? I said, what about my country? And she replied, I think your country is undergoing a revolution. And I said, no! I said, yes! (laughs) And I went to to my computer, to the Facebook, and uh, what happened in Tunisia looks, looked like a revolution. For years, Meherzi had been asking how she could put her skills in peacebuilding and interfaith dialogue to use for Tunisia, even though she was living in France. Now the answer was staring her in the face. Many friends of mine from Nahda came to see me. And uh, one of them, he told me, OK, you were asking yourself how to be useful to Tunisia in doing what you are doing. You are activist in peace building. You know how to settle conflict 
and now you have experience in drafting constitution. What if you come one of our candidates to the Constituent Assembly? Mehrzia wasn't the only Anadha member who had built a life and a career in civil society in Europe who suddenly found themselves thinking about their futures in a different way. Before the revolution, I never thought that I will have my career in Tunisia or, you know, I can't come back or I come back under risk. This is Amen bin Mohammed. In the early 90s, her father fled the Ben Ali regime and over the next eight years moved through Libya, Sudan and Syria trying to get asylum for himself and his family. He finally found asylum in Italy and Amen, her siblings and mother joined him. Her father, a committed Nahdawi, encouraged Amen to get involved in youth groups, and she dove headlong into civil society in high school. He encouraged me a lot to be engaged, actually, in politics. He said, we are the generation who fight. You are the generation who should build the, the, this new democracy. She joined the Italian Muslim Youth League, which focused on helping second-generation Muslim kids integrate into Italian society without losing their identity. She joined the National Youth Congress and was vice president of two committees. And then, a few years before the revolution, she began to get involved with Anadha. I start to be active with uh, with Anadha party, doing like some camping with uh, youth from all Europe. Uh, so sometime in Italy, sometime in Switzerland and other country. She flew from country to country in Europe, encouraging other young Tunisians to get involved with the movement. Then... The revolution happened. And just like Maherzia, Aman found herself in a place she'd never imagined. The Electoral Committee had set aside seats in the Constituent Assembly, the body that would be elected to write Tunisia's new constitution, for Tunisians living abroad, with special districts in Italy, France, and Germany, and more general districts for those living elsewhere in Europe and in the Middle East. That's when the call came. And uh, when we start talking about, you know, uh, the member of parliament outside Tunisia. So we have this general assembly in, uh, of Nada party in Italy. And they proposed to me, why you didn't run for the election? And it was, I, I, I never thought about that. I was activist, but I never thought about my career here. And to be, wow, in the constituent assembly is not just an activist. So it's a very big uh, thing. I don't want to downplay Amen's achievements up to this point or her viability as a candidate, but I want to point out something that's really important about why she and so many other women were tapped to run in these elections. Rather than running individual candidates, each party in each district made a list of candidates. It could be two people, it could be ten. It really just depended on how big the district was and how many seats a party thought it could win. Then, on election day, you would vote for a party, not a candidate and the seats would be divided proportionally to the vote. So say if you were in a district with four seats and you won 75% of the vote, you would seat the first three candidates on your list. But here's what was unique. The Electoral Commission required that 50% of each party list was women. But more importantly, that every other person on the list was a woman. So parties couldn't just run a huge list of 10 people for a small district and stuff five women at the bottom, knowing they would never be seated. They had to find or cultivate female leaders if they wanted to succeed. Amin was just 27 at the time, but had a wealth of experience speaking to the Tunisian community, living in Italy, both as an activist and as a party member. The leaders of Anata saw her as a rising star. She was nominated, along with two young men, to run in the election. 
I was one of the um, activists and I was in media sometimes and I have my university degree so I was a good profile for them also so they give me their uh, their trust and their uh, confidence so I start to thought about uh, changing my career and start to be here in Tunisia and to be actually like a connection like a bridge between Tunisia and Italy and uh, Tunisia and Europe in general But yeah, and to participate in the new constitution, and it was very big emotion, actually. While Aneta was working both in Europe and back home in Tunisia to rally religious conservatives around its candidate lists, dozens of smaller parties in the center and on the left were being formed to try and push forward their vision of the revolution and the future of Tunisia. Remember, most political parties have been banned in Tunisia for close to 20 years at this point. And even those that survived under Ben Ali mostly operated underground or in very limited capacities. So many of the young people who had worked for reform and then for the revolution had never belonged to an officially recognized party, and now they had to figure out who to stand behind in just a few short months. Back in Sidi Bouzid, Mohamed Bouazizi's cousin Ziad, whom we met in our very first episode, was thinking of his own ideas for the way the country should be governed. So now Ben Ali is off, yeah. He left the country. What's next? We wanted to make it change. And by the way, when you ask people about constitutional, like assembly and things like that, we have no idea what is it. Most people, they don't know. I mean, like, like I said, for almost six years, 23 years with Ben Ali, and before that with Bourguiba, we have no idea. We know just, I mean, there is only one president ruling the country. Constitutional assembly, what is it? He and his friends, and most people in the country for that matter, had never really known a political party other than the RCD, Ben Ali's party. They weren't sure what a constituent assembly would do, but they knew they had found the revolution for something, and they wanted to be part of what came next. We wanted just to take this step and challenge them at least to be involved in this, uh, in this assembly. They would stay up late nights in a cafe, shutting the doors after curfew and staying until dawn, talking about what kind of government they thought Tunisia should have, and hatching a list of their own. We just created this like list called The Scale. It's like people from different towns in city Bouzid. We wanted just some kind of change. Like before the revolution, no one wanted to be involved in political life. So we were so scared. There were nine people on the list from across the political spectrum. Some were older, but mostly they were young folks like Ziad, who was only 27 at the time, just like Emin. The only thing that united them was that they all were unemployed and wanted the interior to have more representation. They called their list the scale, to represent the scale of justice, but also to the scales that were confiscated from Mohamed Bouazizi just before his death. It would be the first time any of them had ventured into the political sphere, but they had some big ideas about what they wanted for Sidi Bouzid and the rest of the country. Actually, in our list, we do support some kind of federalism. It's the same thing like the United States. Each town, they have their own independent rules. We go back to the supreme government here in, Tun- in Tunisia. But at least we have like some kind of self-government. So we can just control what we have in there. Yeah. They had their list. They had their platform. But they had no idea what to do next. Meanwhile, in Italy... Amen was deep in the midst of strategic planning for the campaign with the full weight of Anantha behind her. So we start to fix our political program there. And, you know, our strategy to campaign in Italy, we have 25 or 23 days 
of electoral campaign, official electoral campaign. So how we can use these days, this period, in a big country as, in, as uh, Italy. So we start to divide all the region of Italy where the Tunisians are focused or based. The three candidates split up the country into three major regions where Tunisians lived. During the week, they'd make phone calls and campaign from their base in Rome. And each weekend, they would hit the streets in four or five cities in those Tunisian-saturated parts of the country for some good old-fashioned canvassing. So it was really hard because you should take the train, the flight too, and you should run and uh, driving from a city to another and you should to, uh, to participate in that and to organize that. So uh, it was really hard, actually. I remember that I became like very, <laughs> very thin because it was really hard. They were organizing rallies, jetting between cities and getting out onto the street to talk to people. Their campaign platform was extremely practical. They wanted to represent the rights of Tunisians living abroad in a way that was beneficial to them. So they focused on things like the price of importing a car or lowering dual taxation. We go to streets where uh, Tunisians are focused there and sometimes... Even if uh, Arabic in general, we, uh, we talk with them. Maybe they know some Tunisian, so they will talk for us like this. So it was like this, our uh, electoral campaign. While Amen was running herself ragged campaigning in three and four cities a weekend across hundreds of miles in Italy, supported by Anatta's well-oiled machine, Zid and the members of the scale party were trying to drum up support back in Sidi Bouzid. We have nothing. We have some support from people, yeah. Yeah, go ahead and we just I mean, support you, yeah. But we no money, nothing at all. Yeah. It's like even when you run for this election, you're supposed to reach all places in, in my town, in Sidi Bouzid, at least, yeah. We're not able to do that. Everyone on the list was unemployed. No one had a car. And the towns in the Sidi Bouzid governorate are spread out over big distances. They could hardly get to the outskirts of town on foot, let alone to other cities in the area. But there is a program set up by the government to help small parties run campaigns. We applied them for the government funds because actually I said to them, like, we're jobless by that time. Having, I mean, the, I mean, like the cost of a coffee and a packet of cigars, it's like a dream by that time. Yeah. But like running for a campaign, political campaign in the country after the revolution, it's, uh, <laughs> you can imagine yeah, how much money we need. They got 3,000 dinars, which was a little over $2,000. It didn't go too far. We rented the car for one day, and the rest we just, I mean, printed brochures and, like, flyers. That's it. They drove around to different towns for one day and hung up their flyers. Having grown up under a dictatorship, that was all they'd ever seen in a campaign. And it wasn't as if Ben Ali's party ever had to work hard to get elected. Winning election for 99.99%, even you just, I mean, God... Or Allah, if he ran an election here, he will not get him in the 99.99%. You know, Zid and Amen were similar in many ways. They were about the same age and had come from similarly difficult parts of the country. They were both college educated and they cared about their communities. But they weren't necessarily politicians when the revolution happened and shifted their vision of themselves and their futures. But in a strange twist of fate, Exile had prepared Amen to succeed in this new Tunisia better than fighting to overturn Ben Ali had prepared Ziad. So many people were worried about the return of Anetha because they knew how to thrive in a democracy. They knew how to write policy and platforms, how to use social networks to mobilize voters, 
how to run successful campaigns, and some of them, like Mahatazia, already knew how to write a new constitution. The revolutionaries knew how to write an anti-government tract. Use social networks to start a protest, make a firebomb, craft a slogan, survive for years in prison. That's what they had spent the last two decades doing. That and looking for jobs in a dismal economy with no social safety net. The fight against the regime wasn't always unified, but it had Ben Ali's demise at its core. But without a common enemy, the opposition splintered. Many of the revolutionaries couldn't agree on what they wanted next, or how to go about getting it. The campaign season was fraught, with dozens of parties and independent lists running around the country. But on election day, Zid was full of hope. We didn't sleep at all. Yeah, we, we had, I mean, some kind of dreams. We were dreaming, yeah. Oh, yeah, we'll be in this assembly and we'll make laws and rules that the country, I mean, will follow, I mean, for the next generations at least. They hit the streets for one final campaign push. On the date, we're running everywhere just asking people to, to vote for us, yeah. And, like, by the way, I, until, I mean, like, the last minutes, I thought that I will win the election. Because actually 3,000 votes, 2,500, you would be, I mean, elected by that time. Zid and his running mates stayed up all night waiting for the results. They were hoping to eke out a victory, even if it was just by a few hundred votes. But when the returns came in, they had fallen far short. At a certain point, I was disappointed, you know. Why? In your face, people, they do support you. Yeah, go ahead, we do, we'll support you. But at the end, after the election, we realized that nobody's supporting us. Yeah. We talked to thousands and thousands and thousands of people by that time. And they were supporting us. We were born from the revolution. Yeah. We are not a political party. We were part of this revolution. So at least we hope that someone will support us. I mean, I think we reached like 2,000 voices and something like that, which is, which is nothing comparing to Nahda, to compare to other political parties. They have cars, they have money, they have everything. Even by that time, they give us 3,000 dinars. Just like a push from the government by that time, 3,000 dinars. And they asked for this money back after that, by the way. Because they had failed to garner at least 2,500 votes, the scale party had to return the public campaign funds they had received. A group of nine unemployed women and men, who had fought for the revolution from the very first day, now had to find a way to pay back the equivalent of several months' wages just for the opportunity to participate in democracy. In Italy, a man was making her final push from the Ananta offices in Rome, following along with their exit polls as the results came in. She already had a good idea of what the results were, but it wasn't until later that evening that the official word came down. I was actually, you know, just after the announcement of the result, I was invited in the U.S. Uh, residence uh, of uh, the ambassador there. So in his speech, he said, tonight we have a special guest. He said, we have a member of uh, Constituent Assembly and she got elected and actually the... the the first announcement was from the U.S. embassy there, so it is why it was it was great for me. But it was a little bit embarrassing. It wasn't official yet, but he like welcoming me uh, warmly. So the first congratulation was from the U.S. ambassador there. When the final results came in, 
Anadha won 41% of the votes and landed 89 seats in the Constituent Assembly. Amen and Maharzia both won seats, and Maharzia went on to become the first deputy speaker of the Assembly and the highest-ranking elected woman in the Arab world. Anadha formed a coalition government with two secular parties that had built an alliance with them in exile. Together, they became known as the Troika, splitting power in the Constituent Assembly that would both run the country and draft the new constitution. But the other two parties had gleaned 13 and 10 percent of the vote, respectively. Hardly a strong showing. Nearly a third of all votes went to small parties like Ziad's, which didn't get any seats. Tunisians wanted to support revolutionary parties, but there were too many of them to choose from, and they ended up splitting the vote. In many ways, the election of 2011 was a wild success. It was the first time in Tunisia's history that people had democratically elected their government, and they had done it in less than a year after a sudden, shocking transition of power. Nearly 90% of registered voters cast a ballot. But only half of all Tunisians who were eligible to vote registered. And most of those who didn't register to vote were the young people who drove the revolution. So many of the people we interviewed for this series who were willing to take huge risks to get Ben Ali out of power told us that they didn't vote. At first, it made absolutely no sense to me. Here, you've pushed for years, risked prison time, potentially ruined your career with your activism, and you finally get what you want, and you don't vote for the people who will be writing the new constitution? But Miriam, who had been working on mobilizing the youth vote, explained what was going through people's minds. They just didn't see themselves reflected in this kind of process. We, yes, had lots of conversations with people where they said, you know, yes, I'm very happy about what's going on now. I'm very happy that I have this right. But one reason was, I just don't trust all of these people. Second reason was, I don't see a difference between them. Third reason was, I don't trust this process. I don't think this is real. Sort of a feeling of almost disbelief, like can't believe this is really happening. But it was happening. And soon, organized political parties and elected politicians would take over steering the country. And in so many instances, push the youth who had been the unstoppable motor of the revolution back to the margins. Tunisia was the only country that emerged from the Arab Spring with a functioning democracy. But its future as one wasn't guaranteed. Join us next time for our final episode as we look back from 2021, 10 years later, and ask the question, did the revolution succeed? Revolution One is produced by me, Aaron Brown, and Cyrus Rodell. Tim O'Keefe is our composer and engineer. We recorded this episode at La Fabrique in downtown Tunis. This week, we want to pay a special tribute to Mahersia Labidi, who passed away in January from COVID-19 at the age of 57. She generously gave us hours of her time and told so many interesting stories we could have done an entire podcast episode just about her. She was a dedicated lawmaker who often went against the grain of her party's upper leadership to push for things she believed in, particularly for women's rights. May you rest in peace, Mahersia. Thank you.